And if you have a Bible today, would you take it and open up to Luke chapter 9, please? Luke chapter 9. If you don't have one, there's uh, one in the pew in front of you. And at this point, we'd like to dismiss the children to Children's Church. Um, Mrs. Lindy will meet them in the back and uh, take them down to Kids Church. And then parents, you can pick them up down in the small gym afterwards. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going today. If you'd like to take a minute and find that. Um, peek over a neighbor's shoulder if you need to. Have you ever been to the restaurant in the University Park Mall that's called Flat Top Grill? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Flat Top Grill. Or maybe you've been somewhere else like in Portage, there's a Beatty's Mongolian Barbecue. Have you ever been to these places that, that make the food on a giant grill? Flat Top, because it's close, has been one place that uh, our church staff has preferred to celebrate when we have something that we'd like to celebrate. And so over the years, I've taken a number of uh, church staff members there, and, and some of them, the going there with the church staff is the first time they've been to Flat Top Grill over in University Park Mall. Do you know 100% what every staff member who had never been there before said was their favorite item on the menu? Any guesses? <laughs> the bread. That's right. Uh, obviously, we have someone who's been to Flat Top and, and agrees. At, at Flat Top, they have what they call roti, R-O-T-I, roti bread. It's a flat bread. They throw it on the grill. You, you get it with your entree. And it is just about the best thing. I was, I was going to say since sliced bread, but I guess in a way it is kind of sliced bread. You know, every... I think just about every culture on the face of the earth has some kind of bread in their diet. So the French have like, what, baguettes and croissants, right? The, uh, let's see, who, what else do we have? The Indians, they have nan or naan. Um, the Kenyans have chapatis. If you go to a Latin country, a Latin American country, um, or to Taco Bell, you'll find these things called tortillas. Yeah, that's a, that's a kind of bread. Um, these are Kaiser rolls, which I, maybe means they're German. I'm not sure. Give you a second to think about that one. And here in the States, we have Wonder Bread, right? Sliced white bread. It seems like in every culture, there is some kind of of bread dish. And in most cultures, that bread becomes the, the building block of a meal. It's used to make sandwiches. It's used to, you know, to sop up juices. It's used to do all kinds of things. Bread across the globe is common. It's ordinary. And that's not just true today. Uh, for centuries, bread has been the building blocks of meals in most cultures. As a matter of fact, if we go back to Scripture, we see that the same is true there. In Scripture, bread was common. It was ordinary. It was part of what they did. It was part of every meal. I think that's what makes bread such a significant metaphor for our lives. Because if we're to be honest, most of us, our life is ordinary. It's just 
routine. There's nothing necessarily epic about it. I mean, let's just be real. We get up, we do our personal hygiene routines, we go to work, whether it's paid or unpaid. We, we, we put our hands to some kind of meaningful labor. Uh, we have hobbies that we tinker with. We, uh, you know, uh, we take the car in for an oil change. We get groceries. We vacuum the floor. We take care of the house. We make sure that the family's taken care of. We, we try to do our best. We shuttle kids from here to there. Uh, we complain about how many activities the kids have going on, and we're so tired from it. We, we mow the lawn, we shovel the snow. We, our lives are routine and ordinary. By and large, for the most part, there's really nothing about our lives that sets us apart from those around us. We look across the room today to the other side or the other section, and other than maybe different details... We all live kind of the same ordinary routine life. I don't know if this is how you see yourself or not. I don't know if this is when you reflect on your life, what you think. I, maybe you've settled in life for a life that just doesn't, you know, doesn't matter much. It's just routine and ordinary. Or, 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 or maybe you have a desire to have your life be more than that. And so you, you, you have like this unsustainable drive to push and to grasp and to grab for something greater. Something that always just feels out of reach because when it comes right down to it, life is just ordinary. Or maybe you wrestle with a voice that tells you you're not good enough. You never do enough. You'll never accomplish enough. So some, for some reason, this voice tells you you are less than. I have good news for you. If this resonates with how you think about your life as ordinary and less than and not good enough... Scripture takes, Scripture speaks into this by taking this item that is so common, so everyday of bread and saying, like bread, nothing is as common as it seems. Think of bread for, for a minute. Throughout Scripture, think of the different times that bread appears reminding us that nothing, even bread, is as ordinary as it appears. You remember the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness. They were tired of the same old food. And so God provided it. How did he do it? Bread, right? This stuff came up and, and they called it manna because they really didn't know what it is. But even as we read the description, we're like, yeah, it's bread. God somehow took an ordinary thing, bread, and made it extraordinary. Throughout the Old Testament, we, we see this metaphor where the writers of the scripture compare God's law, God's word, what we would call the Bible or scripture, and they compare it to eating bread. There's nutrition. There's what we need in it. Bread is given more than just common billing there. It's put on the highest level with the most important thing. Uh, there's the prophet Elisha, one of his miracles 
was to multiply a few loaves of bread so that um, some dignitaries, if you will, would have enough to eat. Or we come to Jesus. I mean, we get into the New Testament and God takes on flesh and where is he born? In the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Just a common, ordinary place. And yet Jesus said the ordinary can be an avenue, a vessel for the extraordinary. And, and we see throughout Jesus' life um, that he often took the ordinary and did something spectacular through it. So uh, he broke bread and multiplied it and 5,000 people ate. And through ordinary bread, there we have it. God's provision, miraculously. Jesus at the Last Supper, he stood and he took bread and he said, this represents my body, which is given for you. Nothing ordinary and commonplace about that. Scripture time and time again using bread as a symbol reminds us that the ordinary can be overcome, can be filled, can become a vessel for the extraordinary. So the Gospel of Luke actually three times records in detail Jesus' interaction with common, ordinary bread and how he used it to symbolize what God can and wants to do with the ordinariness of life. So today we're looking at the first one. We're in Luke chapter 9, as I said. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to ask you to follow along. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 10. When the, when the apostles returned, they had just been on a, a short-term missions trip, to use our verbiage. They had, they had been out preaching and declaring the, uh, the kingdom of God. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, and this would have been about the time that they ate their main meal for the day. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. <laughs> they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and, and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. So again, remember, the disciples are on, again, in our terminology, a debriefing retreat. They've just come back from a short-term missions trip. They are no doubt spent, exhausted, tired, but also like still in awe of the things that got accomplished through them. I mean, they cast out demons. They preached powerfully the kingdom of God and saw people respond. Like there were just absolutely incredible things that happened through them. And so um, they're on this retreat and the people, this crowd starts to get hungry because it's time to eat. 
<laughs> they forget everything God had just done through them. They had just cast out demons. They had preached the gospel and people responded in droves. And now they're saying, Jesus, the people are hungry. We're exhausted. Would you just tell them you're done teaching? Tell them to go find food and lodging in some of the surrounding villages and let's make this thing work. We can't buy him food. We don't have money to do anything about it. Just go. And before we continue with the reading, why in the, let me just ask you, why in the world did the disciples forget so quickly the miraculous that God had just done through them in the account before this one? How could they forget so fast the miraculous power that flowed through them, that was present in their words? But maybe the more important question is, do we have a tendency to do the same? Do we have a tendency to forget that the God who came through back then is the same God who wants to come through now? Do we have a, a tendency to recast the past with such, with such a golden overlay that we forget that the men and women through whom God worked a generation ago were ordinary men and women like us who were willing to say, God, do what you need to do? Or do we go the other way? Do we get so proud of what we did yesterday that we look back to that as the pinnacle and lose sight of the fact that God still has something he wants to do today. That there's still something fresh that he wants to do in us and through us. Well, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, we've got no money, we've got no food. Jesus, send the crowds away. And, uh, and uh, Jesus says, you give them some food. We got nothing um, unless we buy something. There's no way that we can buy anything because Luke says there were about 5,000 men there. That doesn't include women and children, Bible scholars say. So at least probably double that number of bodies, of mouths, needing to be fed. And to give some perspective, that's about seven months of the average work person's wages just to get enough food for one meal for the people who were there. They were overwhelmed. There was overwhelming need. But Jesus said to his disciples, I'm now at the end of verse 14, but Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, let's circle a few things here. Verse 16 he blessed them, or, or your version may say he, uh, he gave thanks, but circle that. Whichever it says, he gave thanks or he blessed them, circle that. And he broke them, circle that, he broke them. Then he gave them, circle that, he gave them to the disciples to distribute to people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. As you read that story, and I'm sure for a lot of you it's not a new story, you've heard it. You've even heard the other gospel writers' versions of it. This is 
I, I believe, the only miracle other than the resurrection that is in all four gospel accounts. So you've, you've, you've probably read this going, there's some details missing. Uh, Matthew and, and Mark provide some details that Luke doesn't, so does John. But you've probably heard this before, but have you ever thought about the turning point in the story? The story ends with 12 basketfuls, maybe about a bushel, bushel size to help you visualize it, 12 basketfuls of leftover pieces. That's like one basket for each disciple. That's where the story ends. But the story begins in a, a desolate, a barren, a, a secluded place with needs that were too great for the disciples to meet. The needs of the people were overwhelming and the supplies to meet those needs were in short supply. So the disciples who were on a debriefing retreat with Jesus are overwhelmed. Not only have they forgotten what God just did through them, you know, like days earlier, but they're exhausted. They, uh, uh, they don't have what they need. It's not immediately obvious. And so they opt for, send the people away, Jesus. Tell them to go away. There's nothing we can do. Last Sunday afternoon, uh, when Sarah and I got home from church, I was just spent, just exhausted, like poured out. And so I did what I usually do on Sunday afternoon. I laid on the couch to read and to let nature run its course. And when I woke up two hours later, uh, I was still spent. Like I had no energy. And the kids weren't home from Discover Conference yet. And Sarah was sitting across the living room yarning. And so I just kind of sat on the couch like, I mean, it was probably even uglier than that. But, I mean, you get, the, you get the feel. A little while later, the kids finally got home from Discover Conference, and, and we talked about their weekend. And then, then we decided as a family, it seems like a good time to go downstairs and watch a movie. So we did that. We moved downstairs to the family room and, and put a movie in. Partway, I don't know, maybe halfway or so through the movie, my phone vibrates. And I glance at the lock screen, and I see who it's from. And I turn it upside down. It was an old college roommate. He had texted both Sarah and I. He's going through just gut-wrenching, life-changing stuff. And I'm sitting there going, God, I don't, have, I don't have the margin for this. I've got nothing to give him right now. So I turned my phone over. And before long, Sarah looks across the room at me and, did you get your text? Yeah. So now my wife's watching, so I can't just ignore it. So I pick up my phone and I unlock it and I kind of set it on my lap so I can pretend like I'm reading it while I'm actually watching the movie. I'm sorry, this is, I'm a real guy. I'm not sorry I'm a real guy, but I am. I'm just sorry you're getting a glimpse of it. Um, and I'm ignoring it. I'm watching the movie because I'm just spent. I got nothing to give. A few minutes into that, I feel the Holy Spirit whisper to me, Earl, you've seen this movie before. Besides, you can stream it whenever you want. Read the text. 
Read the text and let me respond through you. And I sat there trying to justify why I didn't have the emotional or the spiritual capacity in those moments to respond. I sat sat there staring at the overwhelming need and my inability to respond to it. And if I don't miss my guess, you can relate. Because this happens to all of us. If we're to be honest, there's times when we look around and the needs are too great. We flip on the news and what is it? More shootings and bombings and, and, and political turmoil. Or we, we look at Facebook or Instagram, uh, probably mostly Facebook, and we, we, we scroll down through our feed and what do we see? We, we see people sharing about doctor's diagnoses that they didn't expect. Um, we, we, we see people losing loved ones unexpectedly. We, uh, we see overwhelming need and we see a bad day and, and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to respond and, and just a sad face emoji isn't going to cut it and we know that, but we have nothing to offer. We, we, there's too much need and not enough supply. It's too much. And as if all that out there isn't too much, We've all got our own stuff that we're dealing with and often don't even have what we need there. And so we do what the disciples did. Just send it away, Jesus. Send them away. Let someone else deal with it. Let someone else take care of it. I can't do this. But do you notice what Jesus does? The disciples say the crowds are hungry. It's time for them to eat. We can't do anything about it. Send them away. And what does Jesus say? Better yet, how about you feed them? How about you give them some food to eat? Jesus doesn't let his disciples off the hook. And if we're to be honest, if we're listening to his voice, he doesn't let us off the hook either. Because Jesus knows That if we'll listen and obey, he's got up his sleeve, if you will, just what we need to turn the common ordinary into extraordinary. So the, the story started with overwhelming need in a desolate place, and it ends with more than enough. Hardly enough, not enough, no way there's ever going to be enough. Whoa, I have my own basket of leftovers. And what's the pivot? What changes the story? Luke writes, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. Jesus took the bread And he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it. And just like that, the story changed. These three actions change the whole story. And they don't just change Bible stories. These three actions can change your story and can change my story. If we're willing to allow Jesus to do with us what he wants, 
He can take something ordinary. In Luke 9, it was bread, but for us, it's our lives. He can bless it, and he can break it, and he can give it. If we'll put our lives in Jesus' hands, he can do that. In the hands of Jesus, your life can be blessed. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of name it and claim it theology. When, when I talk about your life being blessed in the hands of Jesus, I'm not talking about um, having more stuff. I'm not talking about accomplishing more things or, or greater things. When we talk about blessing from a scriptural perspective, we're talking about having your true identity recovered and God's calling on your life restored. Your life being blessed in the hands of Jesus, is, it's like being given a new name. You know these stories from throughout Scripture. Abram follows in obedience and becomes Abraham. Right? Uh, you've got Moses the murderer who becomes Moses the deliverer of God's people. You've got David the adulterer who becomes David the man after God's own heart. You've got the brash, impetuous Simon who becomes Peter, the rock on which Jesus Christ will build his church. You've got Saul the Christian killer who becomes Paul the Christian missionary. This is what blessing is. Once you were dead in your sin, and now you're running out of your grave. Once you were uh, a sinner, and now you're a saint. Once you were far off, and now you're a citizen of heaven. Once you were a, a stranger, an alien, an orphan, and now you're a son of God. You're a, a daughter of God. You're a cherished Family member, in Jesus' hands, your ordinary life, my ordinary life, can be blessed. And in Jesus' hands, our ordinary lives are broken. I know that doesn't sound inviting. I mean, if I give my life to Jesus, it'll be broken. Well, uh, the reality is whether you give your life to Jesus, whether you put it in his hands or not, your life's going to be broken. We're going to talk more about this brokenness in a couple of weeks. There's, you know, there's different kinds of brokenness. There's a brokenness that comes from the fact that, that we're born into a sinful state. We're, uh, we're born as sinners. It's, it's our own failure, our own sin, our own mistakes that, uh, you know, we, we partner in the spread of wickedness through the world. That's a brokenness. There's, there's a brokenness that comes from, from frailty. We have limitations. I was up, I've uh, been up the last couple days visiting with Carol Engelmile in, in, in the hospital. And she's up there because she's 90. And last weekend, her legs gave way and she fell. And as we've been talking about that, we keep coming back to the fact that it's, it's just part of her brokenness. It's part of her limitations. It's part of living in a human body. There's a, there's a brokenness that is just the pain and suffering of living in a world that's fallen. 
that's marked by sin instead of perfection. But Jesus invites us to place our brokenness into his hands so that he can do something about it. He says, place the brokenness of your friend facing a life-changing pain. Place it into my hands and let my grace fix it. Let my grace do something about it. Place the brokenness of the sin that you keep bumping against that, that no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to resist. That thing that though you don't want to do it, you keep doing it. Place it in my hands and let me deal with it. Place the pain that you're experiencing because of the fallen world you live in and it's part of your human condition. Place it in my hands and let me do something with it. And when we place the brokenness of our failure, of our frailty, of our suffering into Jesus' hands, somehow we become not broken but open to the healing power of God's grace. Placing our brokenness in Jesus' hands isn't about wallowing around in our sin or fixating about how miserable we are. And it certainly isn't God's nod and wink at our sin as if it's, it's okay, because we're all messed up. That's not what this is about. To put your brokenness in the hands of Jesus is allow the grace of God to humble you to lead you into vulnerability with others, to, to transform your heart into the image of Jesus Christ. In the hands of Jesus, your brokenness encounters God's grace in a way that allows you to help others. After all, bread that's not broken can't be shared. In Jesus' hands, your life becomes blessed. In Jesus' hands, your life becomes broken and open to God's grace. And in Jesus' hands, your life becomes given. When you place your life in Jesus' hands, you begin to realize and to remember that you're not here for yourself. That what happens in your life is not about you. That the world doesn't revolve around you. When you place your life in Jesus' hands, you, um, you, you begin to realize that although my relationship with Christ is extremely personal, it's not private. It's never meant to be just about me and God. My relationship with Jesus Christ is designed so that I can be given. The grace of God that is revealed when you place your brokenness in the hands of Jesus is designed to send you out to help others. I and mean, we've already said there's overwhelming need. Many of us won't get through this day without being reminded of or being exposed to new need in the lives of those around us. But when your life is in the hands of Jesus and it's blessed, when you put your brokenness in the hands of Jesus, you begin to find that he wants to give you out for the life of the world. You become the way that others find the bread of life. 
But to be that, to be given for the sake of others, we first have to be blessed and we have to be broken. So coming back to the story, I want you to notice the last half of verse 16 again. I think we're going to put this on the screen. Luke writes, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and he broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples for what purpose? To distribute to the people. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus could, and he did, if Jesus could perform the miracle of multiplication, couldn't he have also performed the miracle of distribution? Yeah, I mean, right? Couldn't it be? I mean, I don't know how it worked, but as he's breaking it, couldn't have been like people are sitting there in groups of 15, all of a sudden there's bread for you and bread for you and bread for you. And it would have been like going to an Oprah Winfrey taping and, you know, but bread instead of iPads. Okay, maybe that joke's a little aged. Why did Jesus involve the disciples? Twice in this story, Jesus, the people are hungry, send them away. No, you give them something to eat. Well, we got nothing. Okay. Okay, I've got this. We're going to break it. And then here's the food. You start distributing it to the people. Why did Jesus do that? Because this is how God works. This is how God has always worked. As a matter of fact, when man and woman are first created in Genesis 1, I believe we'll look at this a little bit next week, he blessed them. And it says he created them in his image and in his likeness he formed them. Since the moment God created us, his desire is that we would be partnering with him and spreading his glory throughout all of creation. That we would be accomplishing what he wants accomplished in creation. His goal for us is to partner with him in what needs to be done. So when the disciples lose track of the fact that God wants to work through them and they bring the need to Jesus, Jesus says, no, you do it. And they say, we can't. And he says, okay. And he reminds them that with God working through them, they can. When we put our hands, excuse me, when we put our lives in the hands of Jesus, we discover that God can accomplish through us what we can't imagine. What Jesus did with the bread, he does with our lives. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it out. He gives us out for the good of others. The blessing and the brokenness are always for the sake of givenness. So what we can't miss about this passage or, or misinterpret about the text is who the hero is. Right? The hero isn't the, dis- the disciples aren't the heroes because they brought the need to Jesus. That's not the heroic act. The hero in the story isn't the little boy that gave up his meal so that it could be multiplied. The hero in this story is Jesus. And Luke doesn't leave us any way to understand it any other way. Notice again, verse 11, it says, But the crowds learned about it and followed Jesus. 
Jesus welcomed them. Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And Jesus healed those who, had a need, who needed healing. Luke is saying Jesus is the one who welcomed the people. The disciples wanted to push him away. Jesus is the one who taught the people. Jesus is the one who healed the people. Jesus is the one who fed the people. Jesus is the one who left the disciples with their own personal basket-sized reminder that when we put our brokenness into his hands, he blesses us and he gives us for the sake of those around us. And that may be the best news that we hear all day. That because of the cross of Jesus Christ, your life doesn't have to be epic. You can be ordinary. We can be normal. As long as we put our lives in Jesus' hands, and allow him to do through us what he wants to do. And so as we wrap up today, I, uh, I wonder, have you come to the place, to the point in life where you've placed your life in the hands of Jesus? Have you come to the place where you realize that, that really your life is broken? That there's pain that you can't deal with? That you have this propensity to do the wrong thing, to say the wrong thing at the right time, to hurt those that you want to love. Have you come to the place in life where you realize that unless someone else from outside intervenes, you're just going to keep messing up? That you won't be good enough, you won't be able to live in a way that is right and satisfying. Have you placed your, your life into Jesus' hands and asked him to forgive you? Have you brought him your brokenness and said, I don't, I, I don't know what you can do with this. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if you can love me or can forgive me, but, but would you allow your grace to do something with my brokenness? Will you forgive me? Will you make me your child? I wonder if you've placed your hands in the life of Jesus. Now, realistically, though, for most of us in the room, that's not the issue. Most of us have come to the point in life where, where we realized that we were a desperate sinner in need of forgiveness and only Jesus Christ could offer that. And we placed our lives in the hands of Jesus. So my question for us is when was the last time you put your life back in the hands of Jesus? Jesus. You see, we see from the disciples in this story that we all have a tendency to begin operating out of our own power. We have a tendency to forget who God is and what he wants to do in us. We have a tendency to fixate on our own brokenness, our own normalcy, our own inability to meet the needs around us. We have a, we have a tendency to fixate on the brokenness of others to get hung up on that or so overwhelmed by it that, um, that we essentially crawl out of the hands of Jesus and don't allow him to do what he wants to do through us. So when was the last time that you paused, that you took stock to discern, am I operating outside of the blessedness and the givenness that Jesus has for my life? Have you slipped into the trap of thinking that Everything that can be given from your life has already been given because after all, look at my age. 
How could God possibly use a 70-year-old, an 80-year-old, a 90-year-old? If you're struggling with those thoughts, it's time to put your life back in the hands of Jesus and allow him to bless your brokenness and then to give you for the sake of others around you. If you're thinking, uh, I'm kind of new at this thing, like my rose is still in the vase over there. Like I don't, Jesus could use me. Absolutely, make sure your life is in the hands of Jesus. Allow him to bless your brokenness and then to give you for the sake of others. Or maybe in the last week, two weeks, three weeks, you've come face to face with overwhelming brokenness that you can do nothing about. It's time to ask, is my life in the hands of Jesus? Am I allowing his grace to pronounce a blessing on my life and to give me however he will for the good and the healing and the help of those around me. This is where we're going to be for the next several weeks, looking at what it means to be blessed, what it means to be broken, and what it means to be given. We're going to come back to this table every week. We'll be receiving communion every week for the next several weeks because it's important that we remember that Jesus took something ordinary like bread and he raised it to heaven and he blessed it and then he broke it and then he gave it. And this is a picture of what he wants to do with us. I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks as we examine what that means for us as individuals, as families, and as a church body. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this image that we have here in Luke 9, that when the needs are overwhelming, when we've again run up against our limitations, our brokenness, that there's a pivot coming that the story is going to change, that, that if we will put our life in your hands, you will bless us. You will allow our brokenness to open us to your grace. And you'll give us for the good of those around us, for the good of the world.